Good morning again. Uh, it's a joy to be together. Uh, this morning I feel a little bit lonely up here. Uh, Goody is uh, taking a well-deserved vacation this week. We'll be back next week. Look forward to that. Uh, and uh, Becky is at a family uh, wedding this weekend, and so Anna will be with us. So uh, thanks for being here. <laughs> <laughs> If you're a guest, we're particularly glad that you are here and that uh, we look forward to getting to know you. Uh, those of us who've been here a while, let me get encourage all of us to reach out. If, if you're new here, let me encourage you to introduce yourself to someone. Uh, we are bound together in the love of Christ, and let's count on that in our fellowship together. There's a, a black pad there in your pew. If you could take that and sign that, uh, that's one of our ways of knowing who's here this morning, which is helpful for us. And then our second scripture reading this morning will be from Mark chapter 9. This morning we are returning to our series on the Gospel of Mark. We paused our series for the past four weeks to look at Romans chapter 12 and to, to listen to what that chapter had to say to us about how we are to live together as the Church of Jesus Christ. When we were last in the Gospel of Mark, we finished chapter 8 in this action-packed gospel. We had seen Jesus demonstrate his power and authority in a series of miracles where he healed diseases, cast out demons, calmed the storm, forgave sins, fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, fed 4,000 with a few loaves and fish, walked on water, raised a dead girl back to life. And this all reaches a climax for us in chapter 8 in Caesarea Philippi, north of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus asked the 12 disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his great confession, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus immediately began to teach them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And the last we looked at this gospel, Jesus was telling the crowd, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And it's after this great confession and Jesus beginning to explain how he must suffer and die that we find ourselves this morning then in chapter 9. So listen again to God's word to us, beginning with verse 2. Six days after this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. 
Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This too is word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you may know that I am a numbers guy. I love statistics. If you were to happen to see me walking around the neighborhood or around the trail or, or more rarely see me running, there's a good chance you would see me looking at my phone. Not because I'm keeping up on emails or anything, but I'd be looking at my phone because I have apps on my phone that count my steps, that give me an average speed, that give me an instantaneous speed, give me how many calories are burned, all kinds of great statistics, right? One of my favorite apps is one called Map My Walk. After my walk or run, it will graph, one of the things it will graph is my elevation, how much in my walk or run I climbed, how much I went downhill. Well, if we could use Map My Walk for the Gospel of Mark, it would have started in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, closest to the lowest point on earth, over 1,400 feet below sea level when Jesus was baptized. And the graph would be going up and up and up until we arrive here at the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know exactly where this happened. Our text tells us that Jesus led them up on a high mountain. Since they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi, north of the Sea of Galilee, it's likely that the mountain they climbed was Mount Hermon, over 9,000 feet above sea level, the highest mountain in the region. But this story not only reflects the geographical high point of the gospel, it also marks the theological, Christological high point of the gospel. Mark has been showing us for eight chapters that Jesus is more than a great man, more than a great teacher. Mark shows us doing things that only God can do. And here in our text, he climbs this high mountain with Peter, James, and John, and the The veil is removed, the mask is taken off, and Jesus is transfigured. He is revealed in his full glory as the Son of God. We have been building to this climax in the gospel, right? Who is this man that can do these things? And here it is revealed. Imagine the the music if we were filming this, right? There would be a trumpet fanfare as Jesus' clothes, his whole being becomes this bright, shining light, This is what we've been waiting for. No more hints, no more clues, no more wondering. Jesus fully revealed as the glorious one. This morning, I want us to to take the question that we've been asking for the last four weeks in our study of Romans 12 and ask it about this text. What kind of a church should we be in light of this text? What does this text tell us about how we are to live our lives together. And what it tells us is that we are called to be a church that is centered on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This text cries out to us the Reformation slogan, Solus Christus, right? Latin for Christ alone. Jesus alone is transfigured. Moses and Elijah appear with him, But Jesus is the only one who is transfigured. 
He is the only one that has glorious light shining from him. Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, appear with him. Our Old Testament testifies to him. But this is not a vision of three great prophets. This is not Jesus as the last of a list of great prophets. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and now here's Jesus. No, they testified to him, but only Jesus is glorified. Moses and Elijah may reflect God's glory, but only Jesus has the glory of God shining from him. And we're told that Moses and Elijah were talking with him. Luke tells us they were discussing his exodus, his leading his people out of captivity. And then in verse 5, we're told that Peter speaks up. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three dwellings, three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Back in Peter's great confession back in chapter 8, where he says, you are the Messiah, Peter was the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Peter is that rock. And we see in Peter also, not only is he the rock, we also see in Peter the faults, the faults that we find in the church. He didn't know what to say, we're told. He and James and John were terrified, overwhelmed, blown away, as we can imagine. He didn't know what to say. So instead of being quiet, listening, waiting, no, he is overcome with a case of what I call pastoritis, right? <laughs> I don't know what to say, so I should say something, right? I can tell God is at work here, so let's start a building campaign. Wouldn't that be a great way? <laughs> let's build three shelters, three tabernacles. And at least Peter has a sense to know that Jesus should come first. One for Jesus, right? And then one for Moses and one for Elijah. And in the church, we are tempted to be like Peter. We don't know how to respond to God's glory. So let's respond by doing what we know how to do. We know how to build a tabernacle. We know how to run a building campaign. We know how to create a program. Programs are not bad. We need to create opportunities for people to connect and grow and to learn. But I see the pastoritis in me. This disease, this dis-ease, this discomfort with not knowing how to respond. And so we quickly, too quickly, jump in to create a structure that we are comfortable with. The other thing we do that Peter illustrates for us is that we fall into, into syncretism. We build three tabernacles. Peter saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah we can imagine how cool it was for a first century Jew to see Moses and Elijah, right? The great heroes of the Jewish faith. How exciting that would have been. Wow, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, these three great men, these heroes of the faith. But syncretism is anytime we worship Jesus and whatever. Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Jesus and money. Jesus and a particular political party. Jesus and, <laughs> hard to imagine, but Jesus and our pastor, right? This is why I think we enter into the season of transition at Blackmail with some confidence. 
at Henniger, Alan Poole, taught us that black note is built not on Jesus and the giftedness of our pastors. Yes, we miss Alan, but solus Christus, we are founded upon Christ alone. We see also in this text the grace of a divine interruption, right? Peter starts talking. He just starts talking about building three tabernacles. He didn't know what else to say. And so he said, let's, let's, let's just starts talking. And God, in his grace, interrupts him, right? He doesn't say it, but you can imagine, Peter, shh, be quiet, right? This is my son. Listen to him. The cloud comes, overwhelms, overcomes them, overshadows them, and God himself speaks. God doesn't say, listen to them, right? God doesn't say, these are my great prophets. He says, this is my beloved son. This is the, literally in the Greek, this is the son of me, the beloved, the son, the beloved, not one of many, the one and only. It's the same thing the father says to Jesus at Jesus' baptism back in chapter 1. There he's speaking to Jesus, you are my beloved son. Here the father is speaking to the disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Beloved, this is our calling. This is what we are about here at Black Knot. Listening to Jesus. Listening to him, which means more than just hearing what he has to say. More than just listening to a sermon, it means hearing what he has to say and trusting what he says so he'll do what he says. We listen to him to know how to understand Moses and Elijah. How do we interpret this Old Testament? What parts do we still hold on to? What parts have been fulfilled in Christ and no longer apply? We listen to what Jesus tells us, to how we interpret, to how he interpreted the Old Testament. And this is not easy, right? We need each other. God tells us to the three of them, Peter, James, and John. And we listen together. We discern together. It's the question that we have been asking. What is Jesus saying to us in this pandemic? How does Jesus want us to respond to this pandemic? And we have struggled together to listen to him. We are listening to Jesus in this season of staff transition. What Who is Jesus calling us to be? What is our mission? What kind of a pastor do we need? And who should that be? This is not easy, but it is one of the greatest joys of my being your pastor. It's one of the greatest joys when the elders come together or when a team of us come together struggling to know what Jesus is saying to us, struggling to listen. And then by the grace of the Holy Spirit, We look at each other, and we know what the next step is. This is what we are called to do, and we strive to do it. Listen to him, God says. What is it in your life, perhaps where you find yourself babbling on and on about building tabernacles, and where you need just to be quiet and to listen to him? Let me encourage you, listen him. Let me encourage you to get at least one other person to pray with you so that you can listen together. 
And if you need a partner to pray, then give me the privilege of, of praying with you or Goody or one of the elders, one, another staff person. Don't do it by yourself. Get a partner. And then verse 8 tells us that suddenly when they looked up, there was no one there except for Jesus. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And just ponder the, the wonder of this. They've just seen Jesus in his full glory. The cloud of God's presence has overwhelmed them. Moses and Elijah were there. And then everything's back to normal. <laughs> and only Jesus is with them. Jesus alone is left. This whole story is about Jesus alone. But what now? I love the detail that Matthew gives us in Matthew 17 in his version of this, where he says that Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, do not be afraid. And then they walked with Jesus down the mountain. And he touched them. Right? The glorious God transfigured before them touches them, picks them up and said, don't be afraid. Let's go. Jesus is saying, you have seen my glory, but I am still right here with you. So, map my walk graph does not just continue up and up, right? Higher and higher. Can we do one more thing this morning? Can we listen to Jesus? Listen to what Jesus said as he came down the mountain with Peter, James, and John. Verse 9 tells us, we are told that he told them not to tell anyone about this until after the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And they listened and were told they kept the matter to themselves. They, they wondered what this rising from the dead could mean, and so they asked Jesus a question. Well, Jesus, why is it that the religious scholars tell us that Elijah had to come first before the Messiah? Elijah had to come first, and the scholars tell us that when he comes based on Malachi 4 that we read, he will make all things right. And they're questioning, Jesus, we keep talking about this dying and then being raised back to life. If Elijah comes first and makes everything right, why do you keep talking about having to die? And Jesus says, he responds in verse 12, well, yes, the scribes are right. Elijah does come first and restore all things, but scripture also says that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. So he asked him the question, how can this be? How can that be true if Elijah restores all things? And then he says, verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Elijah has come. John the Baptist came and fulfilled the role of Elijah, and they did to him whatever they pleased. They killed him. John the Baptist suffered and died. If they do, did this to Elijah, they will do it to the Son of Man as well, Jesus is saying. And Mark is saying to us, his readers, and they will do it to you too. Mark tells the Christians in the first century in Rome as they are being persecuted. They will do it to you too. 
Jesus saying to Peter, James, and John, don't tell anyone about this until after the cross and resurrection. He is telling us this because we cannot understand who he is. We cannot understand his glory without also knowing about the cross. When Peter confesses that Jesus, you are the Messiah, immediately Jesus says, yes, I must suffer and be killed and the third day be raised from the dead. You understand that I am the Messiah, which means glory, but it also means a cross. When they see him transfigured in glory, then you see that in light of the cross. This is what it means to be the Messiah. This is what it meant for John to be the Elijah. And this is what it means for us to be his disciples. It means following him, even though that will mean loss and suffering. In this climax of the gospel, that's the highest point we might expect. At that point, Jesus is just to continue off into heaven in his glory, right? But Jesus touches the disciples. Get up. Don't be afraid. Come, let's go down the mountain. Come, let's go down the mountain. And we'll see as the, this gospel goes on, come, let's go to Jerusalem. Come, let's go to face the cross. There was a big fight last night. If any of you are boxing fans, you know what I'm talking about. The third fight of Fury versus Wilder, heavyweight championship of the world, right? Uh, I didn't stay up and watch it, but I heard about it, and I saw this morning there was an interview with, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Fury won the fight, right? And they interviewed him afterwards, and he gave a beautiful testimony to God that he won Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and thank you. And even though he got knocked down twice in the fight, Jesus brought him back up, that he was able to win the fight because Jesus uh, gave him the power. And Beautiful testimony, right? My fear is that's the only story we hear, right? That Jesus is the one who wins world championships for us enables us to win the fight. Can we be a church not just for Fury, but for Wilder as well? Can we be a church for people who get knocked down and may not be able to get back up? Know that they belong here? Because we have a Savior who doesn't stay on the Mount of Transfiguration, but comes down, touches us, and says, don't be afraid. Let's go down. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be the church you've called us to be. We pray that you would help us to be the church, one where we listen to you, that we wouldn't be caught up and our own anxieties, our own fears, but that we would learn how to listen to you, hear what you are saying, trust what you are saying, and then do what you say. 
We pray that we would be a church where we don't stay on top of the mountain, but where we go back down, where we suffer, are willing to suffer, to follow you to the cross, that we might enjoy this fellowship of suffering you call us to so that we can know the glory of your resurrection. We pray that you would help us to tell the true story, not a story of glory unto glory, success after success, but indeed one that knows suffering and the hope of your resurrection. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.